Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Marcus Kirsch, author and founder of The Wicked Company. The big thing to realize is that we are living in an era of problem evolution, not a technology revolution. So we have organizations who spend a lot of time creating solutions without having reviewed what the actual problem is. And we know that some problems have changed because technology has entered our life. Technology has, to some extent, changed our behavior the way we connected around the globe. And that has led to a type or characteristics of problems to grow and evolve around us without organizations or people being able to identify those characteristics. And because we haven't identified it, I think that's why we're failing a lot. This is Marcus. He's a .com veteran with nearly two decades of award-winning, international and integrated design and technology project experience. As a Royal College of Art alumni and ex-MIT Media Lab Europe researcher, Marcus has worked as a transformation, service design and innovation specialist with project experience for companies like British Telecom, GlaxoSmithKline, Kraft, McDonald's, Nationwide and many, many others. Because of this experience, he believes that we need a new narrative, mindset and way of working to align ourselves with what society needs today. As he states, we live in an area of wicked problems, problems that continue to evolve and morph beyond your solutions, even as you form them. The ways that always worked to solve problems doesn't work anymore. The days of tame problems, like mass production, building bridges and solving for X, are behind us. But we're still designing companies to solve those tame problems. And as a consequence, 70% of digital transformation are failing, according to McKinsey. Marcus Kirsch is on a mission to change all of that. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Marcus to my podcast. We explore how the nature of problems are changing from tame problems into wicked problems. And what this means to the mindsets, the organizations and the cultures that we need to develop to succeed. We also address how our measures should change and how qualitative measures become essential in the process. And last but not least, we talk about what tech entrepreneurs need to do differently to drive the transformation and unlock new margin-boosting sources of value. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, why it is key to fall in love with the problem and not the product. Secondly, why the better way to look at finding solutions is at aiming for effectiveness, i.e. impact, rather than efficiency. Thirdly, that we have to develop an idea about sustainable failure. That means to learn faster and grow your innovation muscles better, quicker and more effective. And fourthly, why it is key to embrace emotion as a skill to truly understand what the problem really looks like. Hi Marcus, 
thank you for making the time today and be a guest on my podcast. Hey, thanks, Tom. I've been following you for a while, actually subscribed to the newsletter that you had created when you were writing your book, The Wicked Company. So I've seen it, I've followed it for a while, but then I sort of forgot to buy it. So excuses for that. <laughs> and the, thing, the thing we have in common is that we actually published our book in the same week last year. So but now it's time to dig a little bit deeper into this because now I have read it for a great, well, to a great deal and I got inspired by it. And I think it's worth spreading the news about it a bit and get people thinking. So yeah, the, the, the book is titled The Wicked Company. I got it in front of me here. When growth is not an, is not enough, exactly. <laughs> so, what's the big idea behind the book? Why did you what's yeah? Why did you write it? Yeah, I wrote it because I over the last twenty years always seen that there was something missing. There was a part of the equation or part of the challenges I saw at various companies at various industries that seemed to be missing a vital part of the equation of the challenge to understand the problem in order to better address it or find better solutions for it. And it took me a while to understand that it's not just one company having this issue. It took me a while and me moving through various industries to understand that actually most industries are facing the same challenge as well. The same pieces are missing. And to try to be as concise as I can probably get with obviously having to elaborate on parts of it, I think the big thing to realize is that we are living in an era of problem evolution, not a technology revolution. Yeah? So we have organizations who spend a lot of time creating solutions without having reviewed what the actual problem is. And we know that some problems have changed because technology has entered our life. Technology has, to some extent, changed our behavior the way we connected around the globe. And that has led to a type or characteristics of problems to grow and evolve around us without organizations or people being able to identify those characteristics. And they've been trying to use the same tools and mindset to approach a new type of characteristic, but but we're only good in approaching old types of characteristics. And because we haven't identified it, I think that's why we're failing a lot. So what I'm trying to do is to create wicked companies because these new types of problems or groups of characteristics define wicked problems. And the classic organization is only capable of solving tame problems. So they're kind of tame companies. And I want to help create wicked companies, hence the title, The Wicked Company. The Wicked Company. So what's the opportunity if we get this right, if people transform from a tame company into a wicked company? Yeah, so obviously we will be able to tackle wicked problems, but what does it mean, right? So in a more simplified way or maybe more a familiar way to express this, I would say that so we're going to be able to much better explore the space in between silos that we have. And silos are within organizations, between people, between the customer and, and an organization. And in areas of the marketplace, that we haven't explored yet. So I believe there is exponential opportunity to explore that if we are addressing things differently and identify those people, we can actually start solving them or addressing them. And that creates more value, value that doesn't exist yet. And I believe that that value is exponential and there's some indicators for why that is. 
I can elaborate a bit later. So yeah, for sure. Opportun- opportunity and breaking those old silos that we already know are holding us back. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you said already, already a couple of things around the problem evolution. It's not a technology evolution because a lot of people think that technology is, is what's driving the whole thing. But maybe the problem evolution is, is growing even faster because of that. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, opens up new areas to drive new value uh, possibilities, which is also a thing I write about in my book. So we see similar things here. We talked a little bit about already like the wicked company and the wicked problem. But just for everybody to understand, what is a wicked problem? Yes. So a wicked problem, an easiest way to understand it is a little bit like a hydra, you know, where you chop one head off and two grow back. (laughs) It's a moving target, an evolving target. To give you an example of a tame problem in contrast would be something like building a bridge, right? Building a bridge is an engineering problem. So engineering is amazingly good at solving this. And it's not a big challenge for it anymore. It's also that when you have the problem of getting people from one place to another and the bridge is is that solution that once you apply the solution, you solved it. You don't have to do anything more. The problem will not change anymore because you solved it completely. And in contrast, a wicked problem is different. So while you will be working on the bridge or on the solution for a wicked problem, in this case, which a bridge is obviously a tame version of that, the, the problem will keep evolving. And even after you deploy your solution, the problem then goes and is trying to figure out ways around it. It will adopt to it, either in a better or in a worse way. So either improve or make things worse. And that makes then, therefore, any solution you apply, not very predictable towards how it's, in which way it's going to change it. Because you can't, it's, it's too complex of, a, of an issue to really predict the outcome. So therefore, is one of the main reasons why you have to approach these wicked problems a little bit different. And to give you an example of a wicked problem, poverty, crime are very classic ideas and pandemics in particular, is a topical one here, are very wicked problems. Why? Because I think that's where pandemics, that's, that's the silver lining of the whole mess we're in these days is that we're now living through a one example of a wicked problem. So we know that when it first started, people through some solutions at it, the testing, the tracing, all of these things. But we all know that since then, these things have evolved, right? So people have behaved differently, not necessarily following the guidelines, sometimes following the guidelines, but the way the virus has been traveling through society has been different. Now here, you know, I'm based in the UK, we now have a a new strain of it, we have a variation of it, it has mutated. And we see other countries where the society, the population has very differently behaved towards what to do. U.S. is probably one of the not so great examples of that, but a great example to show that you throw a solution out, people will behave differently depending on context, right? So now we're having, we're in the second, third variation or evolution of how we behave towards it and what other solutions the governments can help us, you know, put against it and if you look a year back it's been quite different you know it started it felt sort of clear and now it's messier again and then there's a bit of clarity there it's messier again now we have a vaccine but was that what does that mean now we have people who refuse the vaccine now we have a vaccine that you have to apply in two stages so you can see you can see how this works i think so i think you know when i published the book over a year ago I thought, you know, it's going to be hard to elaborate a wicked problem to people. 
now a year later, everyone's living it. And I think hopefully, therefore, people are going to understand a bit more how significant these things are and how treacherously different they behave. Well, that's the thing at the end, something that highlighted from your book. The best entrepreneurs have a deep understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve. However, there are some problems, like wicked problems, just to give an example of that, which require a new thinking approach. So, so what does it actually mean in terms of how orga- organizations need to change themselves or transform themselves? Yeah. So I think there's three general principles or areas that I like to, to talk about. The top one is, and I like to say, the mindset shift towards love the problem, not the solution. Right? Which means because the problem is changing so much, means it requires more energy or time to chase it and to observe it and to measure it even after you've done a solution, which means percentage-wise as an organization, you have to start spending more time and money on this. So that means more of your activities should be about learning what the problem is and how it evolves. If you spend less, then it will escape you and you will fail. Let me make a small interruption here. Marcus just made an excellent remark about the critical distinction in the mindset that remarkable software companies have versus the rest. The mindset towards falling in love with the problem and not the solution. It's a subtle difference, but an important one. I see too many business software companies that suffer from this creating mediocre products that don't get traction. They might say or think that they have this mindset, but actually do the opposite. So this is a critical trait remarkable software companies master. And with that, they create deep defensible differentiation and find ways to approach the problem in a different way and not a slightly better way. And with that, create a meaningful shift in value. So you can master this trait as well. And I have two options for you to get started. Firstly, Read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can find that on Amazon.com. Secondly, get into action right away. Surround yourself by a group of people that think and act like you. Tech founders and CEOs that will help you remove your blind spots, explore new paths and sharpen your thinking. How? Just visit valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. And if you spend more, you will have a good chance. So that's one the main difference. And that goes a lot with how leadership in an organization defines what time is spent on what. It's very simple. How governance structures work, right? It has a lot of impact in there. But it starts with that mindset to identify that saying, hey, we need to spend more time on a little bit more research or spend more time in testing before we do something else, right? Not just push solutions out. And a lot of organizations that are towards tame problems push a lot of solutions out. Why? Well, the solution is pretty known. Often organizations only exist to create a variation or a variant of, of a tame problem. So they're in pretty solid area. They're, they're, the, the failure is not big because the incremental extra value they're bringing is not that big. Therefore, the risk is low. Therefore, they have no reason to, to test anything more and yeah, learn anything more because they know most of it already because they're dealing with a tame problem. However, if they're dealing with a wicked problem, they need to start admitting that they have biases as human beings with their backgrounds and their practice and what they know. And that they're dealing with that type of problem, therefore, it's much trickier. The second part is efficiency versus effectiveness. So there should be more focus or a description towards what to do to chase effectiveness. The way I like to understand efficiency in this sense is that I've seen a lot of organizations trying to improve efficiency. Again, it's a typical tame organizational activity because you already know what it is. You can only get so good before you build the best fridge in the world, right? So efficiency is what gives you the market lead. 
the wicked problem moves so fast that if you're still applying the same tools tomorrow or in three months that you're applying today, they might not lead to the same effect. True. So effectiveness, in my sense, gives you always the freedom to say, right, we're looking for the impact and we don't care what tools we're using. Whereas you look more efficient, that has a tendency to describe an area you already identified and you're not moving outside of this area, right? So your, your options are limited. Yeah. And therefore, effectiveness is more what you should focus on in wicked problems because you won't have time for your current solution to make it more efficient because if the wicked problem evolves to something where you need a new tool in order to be more effective, you should be able to go there. Yeah. So the second you tell your teams or your people in your organization to say, no, I'm just looking for something that's more effective, that opens up your possibilities to try something quite different than what you've done before. And yeah. it sets you up to look for sometimes solutions you have, might have never thought of. And that gets you into, more easily into the area of innovation, right? True. So it opens up doors. So effective, effectiveness versus efficiency. Move more towards effectiveness and measure like that. And the third part is the most familiar one, which is experimentation. There's been a massive move into experimentation and trying a lot of things, you know, famously Google, Airbnb, best example, you know, Facebook, they're running hundreds of experiments every month and the best ones win and the other ones get dropped very quickly. So fail, fail fast. So we're, we're very familiar with this, but one thing I would normally point out when I talk about it is that you need to start to rename failure. So failure should be considered as a value of learning, right? Yeah. And there's plenty of other examples that you can bring in to understand that, that, oh, yeah, actually, that's how you really chase the big stuff. You know, if you look at athletes, I'm a former skateboarder. About 98% of what skateboarders do is fall. You know, they fall and they fail. What they managed to do to develop, and it's really interesting because Rodney Mullen, one of the most important skateboarders in the world, is saying you need to develop an idea about sustainable failure, right? And sustainable failure is basically when you fall, you can go back up without breaking a leg. You don't want to fail where you break a leg and you're three months out of commission, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same with athletes. If you look how athletes actually build these extra, you know, few extra seconds towards a 100-meter dash or something, it's all about you basically train your muscle towards failure or you break it in small amounts. And then you see that they repair quicker than your competition because that make that means you're getting better gains. You know, you're building up muscles better, quicker, more effective yeah. than your competition. And if you talk to any athlete, there's some interest, you know, like the recent documentary around plant-based protein with athletes and that you can be high-performing athletes just on plant-based on you to eat meat. They talk a lot about the cycle between training and recovery which is essential and the quicker you can recover the better. So sustainable failure is, is a thing and it sits in various different areas in the world and it has been proven to be a thing, right? So that's the third part, the experimentation and, and how you treat failure. I mean, if you look at this, quite of an interesting list to take on as a CEO of a company <laughs> to see where, where do I stand? So one of the things that I noticed and I highlighted in, in the book is you watch many companies and you realize there's a lot of things going on that's not visible. Maybe that's already in the three areas that you just highlighted, but that's the very interesting part that you need to start to get an eye for these things. So, so what is not visible? What is maybe the most, yeah, what's the word thing that, that, really, that really struck you? Yeah, I think 
just two things to say to that. One is about bias. And I think a lot of things, as individuals, we don't see, we miss a lot of things because of our personal bias, right? We don't recognize certain facts. We don't recognize certain things to be relevant or value because we have a very particular way of looking at things. Everybody does. Everyone has biases. And the area of behavioral science is becoming very, very important in order trying to find ways to use those insights in eradicating bias and having a better idea of what's really going on, better understanding. So therefore, you know, in terms of missing, I would say, well, you know, try to build teams and groups of people that are diverse so you can eradicate bias. The more you get different views onto the table and you listen to all of them, the more likely you eradicate that because it won't be just one person saying one thing, seeing things in one way. You'll actually get an insight and, oh, that might matter as well. Oh, that sounds relevant. That sounds interesting. Well, let's test it and see if it's a thing, right? Just the fact that we heard it and we recognize it means that we can actually test it. It might be helping us solving things, right? So that's one thing. Acknowledging bias, especially I think as leaders, so there's a big shift in leadership that I hear many, many times. So me and my friend, Troy Norcris, so we run the Wicked Podcast that we just had you on turn as well, you know, where we talk to book authors and something that comes up there a lot is bias and trying to get rid of bias. In particularly leadership, acknowledging that, look, I'm flawed myself, you know, therefore we're all in this together. I think it's a very good new leadership style. The second one is that I would say that in terms of missing things, especially because tame problems are easier to measure, easier to contain and scope. Wicked problems, because they're often people problems, which then means they're often driven by emotions, have a big qualitative component. So in business, we have a tendency to measure only quantitative information, right? Because qualitative information is famously hard to measure. However, this is changing. And with things like experimentation, we actually get a bit more into that area of being able to measure it somewhat by, you know, kind of surrounding the problem area to be measured with other tools in order to get to the, to the heart of what, what, what emotions really do and yeah. where the value of emotion comes in in terms of buying decisions and what people like about services and so on. And I think at the same time, if you look at service and experience, there's a big emotional component to that. But the qualitative aspect is often missed when targets or outcomes are described in organizations and i think because wicked problems are people problems it follows that that qualitative aspect is a very significant aspect getting on top of wicked problems because if you don't consider it then you don't see it and a lot of organizations are still not quite set up to see them because they're lost behind often arbitrary numbers so recognizable and i mean while you are describing these i get the impression that startups are better suited to deal with wicked problems Do, do you agree with that uh, yes and no. I think, you know, I recognize uh, it's not a hype anymore, is it, around startups? I think it's a mixed bag. It's like, for me, it's a little bit like a statement where I say all oh, millennials will be the future kind of thing. It's it's yeah, a mixed okay. bag. So there's some aspects of startups that definitely work well with that. Startups are very held, especially when they start up, that, yeah. you know, they very quickly do research, customer research, you know, chase your first customer. If you can prove that you get your first customer, you know why you get your first customer, you're on a winning recipe, right? So they're naturally actually doing that. Something that big companies, because they're already a bit more comfortable with the customers they have, 
are less prone and driven to go. For a startup, it's really important because they have money for the next six months. So within the six, next six months, they have to turn around a certain amount of customers. That means they are very aggressively chasing. And when you're very aggressively chasing, you're going for effectiveness, not efficiency, right? Sure. Yeah. So by nature, I think startups are very driven by effectiveness, not efficiency. So yeah. there's one of the characteristics. And they experiment a lot in order to very quickly sure. find the one thing that works with the customers. Yeah. So that, that's already two pieces. And loving the problem, it's often that startups start with thinking they know the problem. And then after a while, they've realized, actually, we're solving a different problem quite better. So they pivot. Yeah. That's very good about loving the problem. Because if they better find out what their real problem is they're solving, the better. On the other hand, on the downside, I think you know startups had a tendency to be very tech-driven and very solution-driven. And so sure. as a flaw of a lot of startups, it has been often that, you know, startups didn't really know what problem they're solving. They had a solution, True. didn't know what the problem was, right? You see that all the way. Yeah, and not surprisingly, a lot of those startups fail because they never find a problem to solve. And if they don't find a problem to solve, there's no customer to solve the problem for. So, so you I know, think they, uh, they know the problem, but the problem is not, is not the real problem. It's still about kind of going deep enough to really understand it inside out. Yeah. I think some, you know, smaller companies as well probably still have, if you look at family businesses or others, they generally have more of a tendency to talk to the customers more. And by nature, they will understand the problem better because they will not just talk about, do you want to buy this? They will know if a customer has a family and kids and these kind of things, right? So naturally, you're going into the qualitative aspect of it, which then naturally gets you a little bit deeper into what the problem really looks like. So it might more be a size problem of yeah. established companies to rely on secondary information from research companies and not being that close to the customer. You know what I mean? Sure. That might get them into the inability to get closer to the problem. Yeah. Well, that brings me to another one that I that I highlighted as a quote that you made. No CEO can tackle a wicked problem if he or she sits in a tame company. Why is that the case? Is that because of those reasons? Or is it so hard for a CEO to make the change around? Yeah. So I work a lot in change and transformation. My background is design thinking, service design. But I started to work in transformation because I wanted to create context within which problems can be solved better. Because I found that to be an issue in a lot of companies. And I've seen a lot of CEOs or managing directors or you know leaders in companies have the right idea, have the right mindset, but fail because the rest of the organization just can't move. And sometimes even if you put a lot of investment into, you know, let's look at this problem, let's have a team there, it then fails because the rest of the organization doesn't support that approach because it measures differently, looks at it, reacts differently. And by the time you actually can put something to market, it's too late. Again, the problem has moved on. And, you know, I've talked to quite a few frustrated leaders to say, look, you know, I tried this in a few companies and in only one it worked and others it just didn't work because they weren't committed to, you know, that kind of mindset. And mindset change is the bigger biggest challenge the same with it's not just the same with ceos you know it's with specialists people who are great with innovative thinking if you're sitting in the wrong context yeah. you can't grow and so yeah for a ceo it's a group effort these days wicked problems more than anything are a group effort you know when i talked about you know you need to have diverse voices to listen to a single ceo will not be able to pull that off 
The problem also is even if the CEO would pull everyone by the hair through it, then people are not enabled and they can't make decisions themselves in their teams quickly enough because the CEO can't micromanage. So it just, it doesn't set itself up. So a single person will never be able to do that. You need commitment by the group, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I see that. This, I mean, it, when, when you go further through your book, you talk at some point about, you make a big case towards the flatter organizations. One line that triggered me here is the siloed Chinese whisperer effect of management layers only results in unnecessary cost and kills projects. Is that what you mean yeah. with, with like the, there may be even bigger problem of an organization, how it's structured? Yeah. Yeah, so if you look at any hierarchical structure where people are not all at the same time in the same room talking to each other directly, you'll have this Chinese whisper effect, which means you're communicating through proxy, which means information doesn't flow without friction. And by friction, in this case, it is a mixture of, you know, I hear something. For example, if I would now be, and it's really hard, if I would now be tested to exactly repeat your words, and maintain the meaning of what you exactly said, just to listen to that that way takes a lot of energy. So within managerial layers, you know, so I listen to you, I take that in, I put that on a slide, which is already a shift in what information ends up on the slide. And then the way I talk about it will be different because we both have different backgrounds, we have different languages, we have different contexts. And you do that two or three times. And you realize that it's not surprising that, you know, the, the board level has no idea what's going on on the team level. In theory, that shouldn't be a problem. So, and, and there's definitely an exercise needed to maybe look at it and go, why isn't there a more universal language between? So actually a CEO could just go to the, to the factory floor or whatever and just talk to people and they would be able to easily understand each other. It just doesn't happen that often. And it's a problem that's been around for a long, long time. I remember on our podcast talking with Tom Peters, who's been doing this for over 40 years. And he said, you know, he likes the idea of managing by walking around. You know, he introduced that back, I think, 80s, 90s. And he said, it's actually really vital to understand, to bridge that gap. Because if that gap's too big, it's not going to work. So my recommendation there is, for example, that reporting starts to shift differently. And managers should more become enablers. And, you know, there's a great book by... Mr. Lalu called Reinventing Organizations, which talks a lot about that, about uh, different types or different levels of hierarchy in organizations. The other thing is also that it's nearly required for chasing a wicked problem that you are somewhere on a team level that the team themselves can make their own decisions. They can follow to a large extent what they find and react to it. If they can't, if you have to trickle it all the way up, all the way down, then you have recommendation by the middle management that might be inappropriate because they don't have actually the same information. And it's also important that the findings that the teams find through research or being close to the customer are getting transported very quickly and in the right way back up so that leadership learns as well. You know, the learning that happens in the teams, the leadership should get benefits from. And I think, you know, in more classic organizations, you would have the strategy in a man- happening more with the management strategy over there does something then it gets directed down to the teams and then the teams just execute and it's just not working anymore you can forget about that things are too complex for that so you know the strategy nearly now happens with the team because they will have their micro strategy right sitting right there based on their insights and the insights should be fed back into the bigger strategy And, and you know this should be an evolving door as they call it in terms of how information should flow in a company and that by itself is often a challenge for organizations 
I've seen that myself in the, in the organization that I work for. And, you know, you, at some point you just, there's hierarchy and there's also the silos that, yeah, they're, they're called silos for a reason. And uh, yeah. <laughs> you talk about the number of silos because, I mean, people typically think of silos as departments, but you in your book, you mentioned language, for example, as a silo mm-hmm. and there's a number of others. I mean, can you go a little bit deeper on that? Yeah, so silos, I, I use anything from, you know, you can have language, you have can have, cultural context you know i'm from germany i live in 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 the uk you would think those come those countries you know are quite similar or countries like the netherlands you know you'd think they're actually quite similar but actually on closer observation you realize there's a lot of differences in in the way the way people talk the way in some context people say certain things and they would say it and others they just wouldn't because that's just in the culture so you already see these kind of things and then on top of that you have things like practices yeah. So one of my missions is to bring a lot of the practices closer together because in my, so, you know, I got design, th- design thinking and service design and a couple of other methodologies on my belt, but, you know, I worked with enterprise architects, systems thinkers, business analysts, a lot, of, a lot, a lot of different practices that all have their own language in, in terms of a professional language. They have their own artifacts, tools, processes, and so on. When you look at them, really, it's all the same stuff. True. Problem is that when you're an organization and it's not a very collaborative organization, you know, people fight for who's going to say what goes and what doesn't, you know, and that is a problem. As much as when people work in mixed teams and they're very willing to work together, then it's great. You still spend hours understanding what certain terminologies mean. So I, I was in a transformation project where we spent hours to agree what an artifact is and what the process looks like and if we're going to use jobs to be done or if we're going to use other kind of tools and which ones would be better in that context and sometimes that's the right conversation other times it's it just it takes extra time and energy away from you that shouldn't be the case so i think these things have to sort of a little bit come together and so i hope contribute maybe to more universal language by simplifying things and it's it's one of it's one of the efforts i have with the book as well because you know, I, I wanted to write it without any terminology in it, in a very yeah. simple way to understand it. And you did. Start that process, yeah. Yeah, it's relevant to everyone, so everyone should be able to read it. Yeah, yeah it reads fast, so I can recommend it to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we talked in the beginning a little bit about kind of falling in love with the problem. And I mean, in my book, I also uh, go into a lot of depth about like that the problem is at the end where all, where all things starts. And one of the things that I liked about a quote that you took from Einstein is 50% of your solution is knowing the problem. And I think we can yeah. all agree with that. Problem, well, the, the point that I, that sort of made me think was, yeah, is it that simple? Because he said, if he had one hour to save the world, yeah. that's what he, of course, what he's not saying, he would spend 59 minutes defining the yeah. problem than one, one minute on solving it. Yeah. Is it, I mean, are we too simplified on the guy? Yeah. I mean, th- th- I think that's, I see that as well, but, are we too simple on um, thinking that we that we know the problem that we should we go deeper all the time? I think yes, we are. I think even if we deal with something that is you know a tame problem. So because my background is in design, you know, and you look at things like appliances, right? Appliances have been around kitchen appliances, let's for example, in, in particular, been around for a long time. At some point, every fridge or every every toaster has been designed. So for you to actually come up with something new that has extra new value is really tricky. And you have to go into some design or innovation area to get there. You're not going to do that by just 
coming up with some solutions without a context because you got to have good reasons why this thing looks the way it looks. Yeah. So, and in order to get there, you need to revisit what 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 a toaster is, what it means, why it would sit in a particular context, and then why it would be great. You know, things like back in the days, you know, Philip Starks turning a, I think, orange orange squeeze an orange press into into an art piece. It's like, oh, you can have it, and but but if it's like that, it's less functional. It's more like a, an aesthetic piece as well, and therefore it has a different value, and therefore you know. Just what I just designed is more relevant to some people. So that's one of the reasons. The other thing is also that I think, you know, that's just tame problems, but in wicked problems, it's more important because it is a very high risk. You have a higher risk of failure with a wicked problem. So you have to take smaller steps or more elaborate steps in terms of knowing why you're doing what you're doing. So the why question should have been asked more often and check with reality more before you do the full build, right? With something established that's, you know, a tame problem, you can do that because the risk is low. With something like a wicked problem, the risk will always be high. You cannot never quite reduce the risk to a certain extent, I think, because this thing just keeps evolving. So it's a matter of risk. And maybe that's what Einstein meant with it. It's like, if you want to save the world, you have one shot at it. You better know what you're doing. So yeah, spend rather a bit extra time on what the solution might be because if that's your only shot you have, yeah. then you better know it inside out, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. But I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive because you normally think, okay, now we have the, we have the solution, we have the problem and now we're going to solve it and the, the solving it is going to take quite a long time. Yeah, um, yeah well, see, the other, the other thing is also, and then, you know, that just popped in my head because I nearly had it noted down where I saw your questions, but the other thing is also something that comes straight from project management. So, and that's the fact that the money you spend in the beginning of a project is, you know, exponentially lower than yeah. any change you do afterwards. That's known. That's true. And the more complex a project is, the more likely that's a fact. You know, you look at urban planning, construction, architecture, or you look at software, you know, those are very complex projects. And the more you spend on planning and testing small things, the more likely you will be able to later succeed and have less changes to make. And even so, you might spend another, let's say, 100,000 on another two weeks of work, just as a rough example. If it later saves you you a million or five, and then those projects are way more expensive than that, you know, then that's time well spent. True. So I'm yeah. sometimes surprised and I've just been following a little conversation on LinkedIn around the construction industry and like why these projects so madly overrun in that. And oftentimes it's like that. People just run with assumptions a lot. You know, suppliers, there's tons of suppliers and these complex projects evolved more than in other complexity level projects. Sure. And, you know, so everyone goes in with a bid and said, oh, well, it's going to cost that much time. And then everyone bids lower and different. And no one's tested it. If anyone would be honest, it was like, we haven't tested that because there's things like that sometimes they've never been built. You know? It's like a nice problem to have. <laughs> Until you have it. Yeah. It's, diver- it's driven by different incentives. And therefore, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, the focus is not on sitting together and understanding the problem. There, the incentive is to get the contract as a supplier. And that's different, right? So, yeah, unfortunately, some industries are more prone to that. But, you know, it, it, it goes back to, and we've been knowing this for at least 50, 60 years, if not more, that time well spent in the beginning, you know, or some people say, it's better that I do a mediocre job on the right problem than do a shitty job on the wrong problem, right? You know, that kind of thing. 
So yeah, yeah, spend more time on the wine and understanding. Agree, agree. And yeah, it's this having a sense, having an eye, like yeah, how do you how do you drill down and find out that way that you're really right on that? But that's that's I think in the experimentation again. So like going towards the end of your book, you talked a couple of times about like the, the periods and the trends you've been through. You talked yeah. at length about industrialization and the fact that everything was a tame problem then and people were de-skilled to do just one thing and we got specialists. Yeah. More recently, we have been through the emotion economy and that's where you said one thing that, that triggered me. Everyone agrees on the impact of an emotional connection to a product, but few have succeeded creating one. And then you kind of continue and say, to go beyond that, the future market exists, however, in a more complex and evolving space, one that has a qualitative rather than a quantitative differentiator. So it moves even beyond that experience. So in yeah. the first situation, few have succeeded creating a product that actually we want, the emotional connection. How are you going to succeed if this is going to evolve even faster? Yeah, It's an interesting, it was an interesting find for me because essentially when I did research for my book, I came across Joe Pine's book, The Experience Economy, again. So I read it like second time because it came out 20 years ago, 99, oh, 22 years ago now. <laughs> and he has a really great slide on it in order to show how or why the experience economy is the next big thing and the one that brings higher margins to products and services. So he draws, he draws the line from commodity to product, service and experience. And he said, look at this. And he, he does it with a cup of coffee, which is great. So look at the commodity, which is the coffee beans. So you get that. You cannot make a lot of money selling coffee beans these days because it's established. And maybe back in the days, they were hard to get. They were a luxury item. And then you could charge a lot of money for it. Not anymore. It anymore. Then the next thing, I think it's the, yeah. So the next thing is the product. So that's the, that, no, sorry. The next thing is, I think the next thing is just the coffee itself, right? So the coffee you get at home and you kind of get it as a product and it's grinded up and do it. And that's it. So that's, that's sort of product level. And service level is McDonald's, right? A cup of McDonald's coffee it has a particular price point compared to, again, the coffee, it's more expensive, but you know, you get a service for it. You go there, you know, you're going to have your coffee in your hand in about two minutes and there you go. So that was more expensive, right? And that's where you get more margins as a business. But that's commoditized as well. So since McDonald's, more has happened. Or back in 99 is when Starbucks was a thing, right? And Starbucks didn't say, oh, we're going to give you a cup of coffee right? as fast, you know, fast food-wise, fast as we can, convenient. We give you an experience. That would be the Italian coffee experience. And as much as they've succeeded in that or not, I think most Italians would still disagree on that. Yep. And I think there is just still up, 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 I think up until this day, there's still no bar, Starbucks in Italy. I think they tried to do one and no one went there, bought one. It's a funny story by itself. But what essentially he's then saying, like, look, why can Starbucks charge $4 instead of $1.50 like McDonald's for a cup of coffee? This is insane. What do people pay for? Well, people pay for the experience, right? So back in 99, organizations figured out, hey, it's not just about the product anymore. It's not just about the service anymore. There's something on top of it. Now, if you extrapolate that or want to, or like me, you know, take a marker and add some graphics to the end of it, obviously someone will find a new way to bring something to the economy, to the market that sits even beyond an experience. And in my case, I would argue it's a wicked problem solving. So you're actually not just giving someone something, here it is, that's stuck and 
yeah, you got your coffee, you got your experience, it's, it's done, you know. I'm talking about something that keeps continuing to go and evolve with the person you gave this to, which is a bit beyond of what a service does, a bit beyond of what a normal experience does. And, you know, it's wicked problem solving for people as a service, as an organization. If that's true, then you likely can check in with customers that that's a way higher value than a single experience, right? So that's where the new margins are. So they go up there, right? So you can charge way more money for that because it's a much bigger value for people. And to give an example of what this could be, so I like I like to bring out the example of Nationwide, the building society here in the UK. Yeah. Nationwide gives mortgages to people, right? So they currently think they're in the business of providing mortgages. Mortgages is a product. They still talk about it as a product. They don't talk necessarily about it as a service. Even so, if I look at it, it feels like a service. They do a lot of service things around it, but they're still calling it a product. They're not calling it an experience yet because they're not on that maturity level to treat it as an experience for the customer. And they're definitely nowhere near to solve the actual problem is. But what is the problem, right? Because they haven't identified as an organization what even the problem is they would take care of. Good example again. Which is, which is odd because they're perfectly situated to help people not to say we're giving you mortgages, but we help you save money to buy a house. Now, there's a wicked problem for you. Why is that a wicked problem? The house itself is not the wicked problem. The mortgage product is not the wicked problem. Those are all very contained, simple things, right? What actually is the wicked problem is how do you save money? Yeah, it's not even that. It starts even earlier. It starts with the fact like, can you save money? Do you know that you're a money saver? And some people don't know that. We did research there when, we worked, when I worked on a project for them and some people don't even know they can save money. And it would be great to get those people as customers just by engaging with them saying, hey, we show you how to be a saver. And beyond that, then when you start saving, so let's say you save 10 pounds a month or something, once you got 50, 100, 200 pounds sitting there, you might be doing something else with it. So it's an evolving thing that you can do if you say, as a company, we look at that. And there's some companies who started doing exactly that. People like Moneybox. So Moneybox uses behavioral science in an app. They give you the savings account or the ISA per default, but then they do lots of different things for you, which are is a whole group of experiences in order to solve the problem of helping you save money. And do that by telling you on a Friday, oh, you're going to the pub? Why not have one beer less and put five quid on this now, right? Save five quid. You're going to feel better about it and the rest of the other beer will taste better, right? So they're going into this whole emotional area of saying, how do we, how can we nudge people to help them solve these problems? Sure. So that's, that's the graph, right? This is why this goes up there. And this is why I, I think and I strongly believe there's enough evidence for it with some companies already that do, do it subconsciously. And I think every company could reposition themselves around a wicked problem to really grow in that area is that uh, you need to start identifying your wicked problem. That space is the new market. It's the new market with exponential more margin. So for any company that's out there and says, we're having trouble with our competition with the margins, we can't compete with them. Nationwide, best example, they can't compete with banks because they don't really do bigger credit card business or other business that compensates for the mortgage business. They can't do that. What do they do? Well, if they would go towards that, they would have a competing chance because they would outperform with every mortgage and savings account their competition. So I love that, yeah. like how you kind of move towards an end here. And to end with that, as a matter of fact, like the challenge yeah 
or the advice to everybody, because that's how I normally end, like what advice would you give people listening to the podcast is really to kind of sit down with your team and reposition your company around the bigger problem that you could actually solve with your, problem, with your product and then move towards there. So I love this as a final note. So where can people go to find out more about, well, of course, buying the book, but also to connect with you and say hi? Yeah, well, you know, I'm easy to be found on LinkedIn. There's the book, The Wicked Company. There's the podcast, The Wicked Podcast, which has a new episode every week. So there you can find it on Spotify. And was it Apple Podcast now and Podomatic? Yeah, generally, just send me a message and say hello. There's a website as well, of course, thewickedcompany.com. Wickedcompany.com slash podcast. Can you see a, a nice overview of all the episodes? It's notes in it. So yeah, just come by and say hi. Thank you very much for this, Marcus. Inspiring. I mean, I've learned a lot from your book. I think we are pretty much aligned on a, on a great number of things. Maybe even the books that we have to, written complement each other in a beautiful way. So thanks for sharing this. Thanks for inspiring people about what they should really start thinking about to stay relevant in their industry and to get on top of that. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Marcus. I hope you enjoyed it. If so... Please leave a review on iTunes. And if you got inspired by it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Marcus Kirsch, author and founder of The Wicked Company. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. questions we've got answers business leadership ownership and sales can be challenging tune into the accelerate your business growth podcast to learn from the world's experts join me your host diane helbig as i chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business you'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas tips and suggestions you need to realize greater success Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.